Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome and welcome. Glad to see you all here. We're going to, this is Against the Stream. My name is Jason Murphy, and uh, we practice Buddhism from the Theravadan tradition here. Theravada or Theravadin means the narrow path or the path of the elders, um, particularly our, um, I mean, you know, really we're American Buddhism. This is an, an American kind of view of Buddhist uh, principles and practices but we um, have all trained, or Noah and myself have trained in the Thai forest tradition or the uh, Theravadan tradition often found in Southeast Asia. And um, I've spent time in Southeast Asia in various countries and monasteries and whatnot, as well as here in the States. <clears throat> so glad you're here. And uh, if you thought this was something else, then Thanks for stopping by, and, or you're welcome to stay, up to you. Um, yeah. So last week I took a bit of a detour, but then I was reflecting later, and it actually wasn't a detour. I've been going through the uh, Eightfold Path, um, and we are kind of firmly in, in what is called wise mindfulness, uh, and or the four foundations of mindfulness. And last week, uh, I, I, you know, I talked about and we did a um, death practice and contemplation of death practice. And, uh, and then and I, so I said last week, oh, we're going to take a bit of a detour because of the time of year and, you know, Day of the Dead and Halloween and just good idea to kind of reflect. Um, and then I was thinking about it, and actually it's the first part of the, of the four foundations of mindfulness, um, which we're, we're in. This, this week we'll be talking um, about mindfulness. So we're at the, uh, so, you know, the first few uh, aspects of the Eightfold Path deal with right view or wise view and uh, wise understanding. And then we went through um, wise actions uh, and that talking about precepts and the kind of ethical integrity found within Buddhism. Um, and then the next is wise mindfulness. Uh, and then the, we, you know, so it just, even though I thought I was doing something different, it was really just going along with the plan, so to speak. Uh, and so we'll do a bit more of that today. I'm talking about mindfulness and what does mindfulness mean and the place that mindfulness has within Buddhism. Uh, it's actually pretty unique to, to Buddhist teaching. Um, so we'll explore that a little bit more. And yeah, so that being said, let's, let's just go ahead and sit for a time. So finding a posture that's workable, that's sustainable. Of course, if people want to come sit on the floor or grab some cushions, you're welcome to. Um, those of you at home, 
you know, finding a posture that's workable, that's sustainable, whether you're sitting in a chair or on a couch or on the floor. Even laying down is fine if you're experiencing any kind of back pain or anything like that. And standing up too is also totally fine. It's uh, fine to stand up during a meditation. Mindfulness is really about, or meditation in general is really about finding the posture that works best for you. Uh, and then exploring the other postures, just like finding the object of meditation that works best for you, whether that be breath or sound or body sensations or repeated phrase. Um, but then also exploring the other aspects of it. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. So taking that posture, it's helpful to allow the eyes to close. It's not necessary to have the, the eyes closed, but it is helpful to have the eyes closed. It helps to bring the attention inward. We're often so focused on our external experience. This is an opportunity to turn the gaze inward. Turn the attention inward. And so just acknowledging the different senses. There's the sense of hearing. contact with the organ, the ear. And the sense of sensation, bodily senses. the sensation of breath. The, the sensation of perhaps smelling. Or just note noting the breath at the tip of the nose or the nostrils. Perhaps taste, the sensation of taste.
and the sensation of thinking, the process of thinking, the mind thinks, the ear hears, the heart beats, just a process. When you feel ready, allowing the attention to rest on this experience of breathing. What can you notice about the breath? Does it feel labored? Is it relaxed, easeful? Is it short? Is it long? Is it coarse? Is it fine? mindfulness of the process of breathing. The Buddha's instructions were simple, breathing in, know that you're breathing in, breathing out, know that you're breathing out. 
Of course, the attention may wander off. It's not a problem. It's just what minds do. Can we recognize where the attention has gone? And then with a sense of friendliness or kindness with the mind, Just aiming the attention back, this breath, this sitting, breathing body. Allowing the breath to be the anchor, rooting you here in this present moment. 
sometimes a good visualization to bring in as if you were sitting in a room in a comfortable chair and this room has four windows and a door breath being the the chair in the center of the room this contact point this resting place the windows the, the other senses taste and sight sound smell and the mind each might grab your attention you might find yourself getting up from the chair checking the door looking out the windows whenever you recognize that that's the case simply come back to the chair rest easily in the breath the anchor
again and again. Recognizing when the attention wanders off. Curious of what's at the window, what's at the door. And with a sense of friendliness or kindness with the mind, aiming the attention back. Resting in the breath.
after some time of collecting the attention towards this present time experience, we can begin to open the awareness just noting the different doors and windows without needing to get up and see, without getting distracted, they're just part of the present time experience. seeing the mind's tendency to make stories, and just allowing that to pass. The identification with sound or sensation
again and again, resting here. Experiencing just what is found in this present moment.
All right. So with the mindfulness of breath and really kind of starting last week with the body and death contemplation, we're kind of delving into really the heart of the meditative practice. The One of the words that's used in kind of Buddhism or Buddhist psychology or the group of teachings is bhavana. And the word bhavana really means um, techniques to free the mind. And so there's, you know, there's lots of different meditation practices across the Buddhist kind of spectrum. And, uh, the heart of what's called the Vipassana or insight practice, which is also the Theravadan practice, is mindfulness and concentration. So these two aspects, uh, which we'll go through this week and next week. And really within those two are, it, you know, it's like those Russian dolls. I, I, I use this analogy often because I just really like it. You know, like have you ever seen, you know, those Russian dolls and there's got one big one and then you open it and then there's a, a smaller one and you open that and there's two smaller ones and they get smaller and smaller and more detailed and more detailed. And each, well, actually they get less detailed, but they get smaller and smaller and they're identical. And then, you know, there's these little different pieces of it. And I feel like, um, that's what we find when we start to kind of dig into the Dharma or the teachings of the Buddha is that there's a kind of a heading, there's an overview, and then uh, there's kind of more and more and more, and it gets deeper and delves a little, little deeper into particular aspects. Um, and some people can get very meticulous about it, intellectual about it. And it's helpful to a point, but the heart, as far as I can tell in the 25 years or so that I've been exploring this, is uh, that mindfulness and concentration and the interplay of mindfulness and concentration together is really the, the techniques to be utilized and it has different forms um one of the ways in which mindfulness is classically taught is called the four foundations of mindfulness or the satipatthana satipatthana is um mindfulness and then wisdom um let's see patana Actually, I don't know what patana means. So sati, mindfulness, and pana, wisdom. I don't, I don't know what the other one. I have to like look it up. I, I'm, maybe that's what four and foundational is. I would, I'm guessing that's what it means. I don't know the direct translation, actually. 
unless it is the four foundations. So specifically, the Buddha uh, gave this in this. This is like a really well used kind of quote about these this group of teachings, the foundations. It says, "This is the only way." Just right there, that's pretty strong. This is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of pain and grief, uh, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So that's at the end of the of the you know the the teaching, and in the teaching he goes through each aspect of the four foundations of mindfulness, and so I'll just go through them briefly. Um, body awareness of body practice, which we did last week, um, feeling grounded, connected, but also seeing the impermanent nature of this body, the constant changing nature of this body, the fact that it's actually not a self. That it's, you know, like you've hopefully you've heard that, you know, our cells completely regenerate every eight years. And so we're actually not the same over time. We're constantly changing over time. Um, and so the also the the awareness of death practice is part of the first foundation. And which we did last week, where and we also were talking about the elemental nature of the body. You know, that this body is made of certain elements, and that's really all that's there. And it functions in such a way that, you know, I don't fully understand. It's amazing to me. But that helps to break the kind of ego attachment and the delusion that we're going to live on forever. One of my teachers, his name's Bob Stahl, and he uh, he taught me the 32 parts of the body, which we did a little bit of, kind of the uh, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, as a chant, right? And then in the monastery that he was ordained in, in Burma, uh, that was their foundational practice, was to use this 32-part um, chant. And uh, the, the idea is to really kind of dismantle the ego attachment to the body and to see it for what it is, which is a, a bunch of parts. So, all right, so the breath is the next kind of aspect, which is kind of what we did today, you know, mindfulness of breathing. So this awareness, this breath, again, a constant reminder when we're aware of it that it's living it's born it stays for a while and it dies each breath we're really only alive one breath at a time maybe we can hold our breath for a little while but without another breath we're gonna die now I tempted that when I was like eight years old and I would like go hyperventilate myself and then hold my breath and then pass out you ever do that Okay, it wasn't just me. It also led me to a whole line of like wanting head changes, right? But, um, you know, the breath from our birth date to our death date, it's there and it's constantly changing and it's never the same. 
And this practice of kind of like, what, what's happening here with this breath? Is it easeful? Am I aware of it even when it's subtle? Not obsessed, we're not breath worshipers, but to use it as another tool. So that's part of uh, the, again, the first foundation of mindfulness, kind of breath, body together. And so mindfulness, uh, before I move into the rest of the list, mindfulness is basically saying like, bring awareness to what is happening. Fullness of mind, full attention to experience. And uh, in some ways, this is also the teaching that the Buddha gave around what he calls the middle way. And the middle way is the opposite of the extreme. So it's not, you know, completely obsessing or indulging. Um, and it's not being completely like lackadaisical or, um, or even, or super like, uh, you know, or no, I guess that's on the obsessive sides or the, the just uh, being absent-minded. It's about kind of finding the balance. Um, so much of this practice is about finding the balance, the balance that's actually right for you. And so uh, not that long ago, we were also talking about effort and effort is about finding the balance too. What's the applied effort, not what's comfortable, Right, because often comfortable is not really, there's not a lot of effort involved in being comfortable, but actually being slightly uncomfortable. Because uh, the non-efforting aspect is maybe um, just like seeking pleasure, just like receiving pleasurable experiences. You know, wouldn't that be great? We could just sit in that lazy boy chair and just receive, you know, the blessings of all the goodness and all the pleasurable experiences we want. I don't know. Maybe that's gluttony to bring in another, you know, a Christian kind of deadly sin. We're not talking about sin. We don't really talk about sin here because it's not, it's not about sin. So mindfulness, applying mindfulness to what's happening. What does it help us to do? Well, helps us to see clearly what's actually happening in our experience. And so moving into these next couple foundations, right, um, of mindfulness, we can, you know, we can kind of start to see, okay, mindfulness of feeling tone. In other words, emotional intelligence is also what we're talking about here. The buzzword, it's come back, it's looped back around. It was popular in the late 80s. Then it fell out of then it fell out of favor for a while, um, and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, became the thing, and feeding the intellect became the thing. And then uh, what started to be found um, in later studies is that there was a there would be a, a lot of smart people that didn't know how to fucking interact with people or interact with themselves, and so Buddhism is saying, learn how to be emotionally intelligent. Gain awareness of what's happening within you and around you in any given moment, which is tough to do, especially if you've been conditioned to do otherwise. So feeling tones are what's called Vedana. Do you have something you want to? Also, emotional, like I'm in the other program. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they say emotional sobriety. 
Uh-huh. Right. Sure. So to be sober yeah. around your emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think it's interchangeable. It's just a different way of just a different word and a slightly different meaning, you know, but thanks for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How can we gain more awareness and um, intelligence around the emotional states because I don't know about you guys, but uh, you know, especially a long time ago, but more so, I mean, less so now, but still happens. I get just swept away with my emotion. Noah, uh, <laughs> we were talking about something a while ago and um, we we're out to dinner. And Noah said something to, to me, um, and you know, he's known me for 35 years, you know, my longest friend. And he said, um, you know, well, you could be kind of hot headed. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I can. And that used to piss me off if somebody said that. I'd be like, what? I'm not hot headed. We're talking about. <laughs> but it's true. But knowing that, having some applied mindfulness to when that happens, sometimes it happens, it's after it happens, you know, after I'll, you know, kind of get upset or I, I and, and I've done a lot of work around it. Um, I started to become really aware through this practice of my bodily sensations and the tension that can happen in the shoulders and the core and then using the breath to soften and then inquire that doesn't always happen right away right when somebody cuts me off right or something you know but it does happen more often now than it used to so feeling tones and is really also a way of stripping down all of the nuance of emotion and just kind of good bad don't know you know what this is oh pleasant feeling okay what is a pleasant feeling uh what is that how can i experience that in the body and in the mind what is an unpleasant feeling how can i experience that and sometimes anger for someone is pleasant they get off on it excitatory and that's pleasurable experience and joy is unpleasant you know, and there's some deeper psychological issues as to why that might be, right? Not good or bad, just equal. I mean, uh, a deeper understanding of that, which we'll get into at another time. Well, actually, it kind of has to do with maybe the next thing, because the next thing is mind states. So understanding about mind states. So there's a experience that's ha that's happening. And then there's some kind of uh, feeling tone or ripple or effect. And then there's a story or a, a memory or something that gets kind of attached to it. And, this, and then learning to bring mindfulness to, oh, wow, I have this story. And one of my stories used to be like, I'm angry. I'm an angry person. I deserve to be angry. I have a right to be angry. If you had the life you, I had, you'd be angry too. You know, whatever the story, you know, that I would justify my actions or my behavior. Um, 
And that's less. I like to think. But turning the attention towards what, not just that there's a lot of chatter in the mind, but what is that chatter about? And is there an emotional connection to it? And can it be felt in the body? But this is really, it's kind of like, that's the, the, the inward looking, inward looking that comes from um, mindfulness. And so this, you know, uh, this is the only way. So the Buddha himself, before he became the Buddha, you know, he tried other ways. He tried fasting. He tried, you know, doing extreme yoga. He tried having all the sex. He tried using all the drugs. He tried being like a military man. He tried being married. He tried having kids. You know, he tried being the good son. Like there was all of these things that he tried uh, on either extreme. And then none of them really purified his heart mind. So So when he's saying this is the only way, He's saying, this is the only way that I have found after trying all of these other ways. You know, but he'll always, he, it's, it's a very common, there's a, a saying that the, the, the Buddha gave almost every time he was done with a Dharma talk. It was basically like, see for yourself. Like, don't believe a word I say. See for yourself. Is this path liberating or is it leading to suffering? And then if you apply ethics and effort and mindfulness and wise understanding to this path, does it relieve the suffering that you experience? Now, I don't know about you guys, but um, I've definitely been like, well, I like it, but I don't know if I really want to apply it all. (laughs) you know it seems like a tall order but really it's actually not that tough and over a long period of time you know think about incremental changes so awareness of mind states leads us to awareness of mental fabrications the stories that we create, that we attach to, like the identification with our stories, which is really the cause of our suffering. The identification with our stories. And the mental fabrications that come, sometimes it's, they're just, I call it the, the it's the database, you know, of our past experiences. Uh, It's a perceptual database. Have you ever just felt some way about something or someone like been at the airport or or at the mall or, you know, I don't know, a gas station, like whatever. And you, you like see someone and you have, you know, you're somewhat close to them, but not, you haven't really interacted with them and you feel some kind of way about them. Like a strong aversion. Like you want to punch him in the throat? I have. 
mental fabrication based on perceptual data, perceptual data that doesn't have anything to do with whoever that person is. You know? And maybe there's you know, some vibe or some energetic thing, but usually it's just perception. I just without, I, that's without hearing them say anything or yeah yeah sometimes it could be the sound of someone's voice you know sound of someone's voice reminds me of my stepfather you know the or the you know uh, one time I my I had a okay I had a stepfather who was an alcoholic abusive Vietnam vet okay and he had a big long mustache like that famous actor guy you know looked a lot like him actually tall and lanky and he was angry and he would hit me you know whatever that stuff and. I would see people like that, not him, not the actor guy, but you know, like people would have like these big bushy, you know, handlebar mustaches and I would just want to beat them up, you know, never not I'd say a word, that just would happen, you know, and I wouldn't, um, and I learned to see that eventually as a, uh, but it was just, that's an example of, right, of like something that's based on this perceptual database. So, and then, uh, so we have body and breath, first foundation, feeling tone, second foundation, mind states, mental fabrications, third foundation. And then the fourth foundation is Dharma or the teachings, right? So we're conditioning our minds to receive and saturate, really, penetrate, sometimes it's talked about, allow the teachings of the Dharma to penetrate into our hearts and minds to create a purification process. So by seeing the tendencies over and over and over again, which of course you don't have to do, most people don't. Most people don't really look at why they do the things they do or, or where that's coming from, you know? And what I love, um, and somebody, somebody, this therapist that I used to work with, uh, colleague. She was like 25 year veteran of doing therapy. And I told her one time I was going on a, I was interning, I was an intern. And I, I told her I was going on a 10 day Vipassana retreat. And she was like, Oh, and I was like, Oh, and she was like, yeah, that's like, what she say? That's like two, 10 days is like two years of hardcore therapy without saying a word to anyone else. <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. All right. And I was, you know, I was interested and it was yeah. because it's through this process where all the, and I'm not, I'm not saying like just go on meditation retreats. Don't go to therapy actually, but I am saying the two of them together can really help you free your heart and mind. And for some people, you know, meditation's enough. And for some people, therapy is enough. Doing neither is enough? No, you do like like multiple programs, meditation, therapy. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Doing them both. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Sorry, I didn't understand. So, you know, this is all leading to on, I don't think it was that meditation retreat, but on a different meditation retreat, I had this insight that I like to kind of bring up sometimes. And it's really just like, okay, what's happening here? when we're able to um, slow the mind down and the process down, and we can do this having a 
committed daily practice. You know, we can do this going on long-term meditation retreats. We can do this by showing up. But we begin to see that there are several things happening right now and throughout the day. And, you know, from moment to moment, there's what's happening. There's what's happening about what's happening. There's what's not actually happening. And then there's what's happening about what's not actually happening. And so, like I kind of said earlier, that mental fabrication, that's the kind of, you know, the what's happening about what's happening. So what's happening? Almost all of meditation and definitely mindfulness is kind of helping us to train to talk about what's happening here. What's happening in this mind body experience? Sense contact, feeling tone, which leads to perception, which leads to mental fabrication. That's all that's happening. And so, like I was saying during the meditation, you know, sitting on the chair and the four windows and the door, that's what's happening. That's not going to stop happening. So sometimes people ask me, like, is meditation stop the mind from thinking? No, not really. It can slow that process. And instead of every time something, you know, in one of those windows or doors happens, we're jumping up and running to the window. You know, every time the motorcycle stopped, we jumped up and ran to the window and looked out, you know, we'd be a crackhead, right? But we do that in the mind. What's that? Oh, what's that? And the door, you know, the thoughts. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's that thought. I wonder where that thought came from. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder, you know, sixth grade, whatever happened, you know, this story, that story. That just, I don't know if you have a mind like me, but I, they're just, just a story factory, you know? And so many of them are old stories that just repeat. It's like a mixed tape I got in the 80s. And it just never, the songs never change. But I like to hear it because I'm used to it. Even though it wasn't really that great. Some of it was good. So what's happening about what's happening? So these are all the thoughts and emotions that arise based on that present time experience. So this is the, 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 the second kind of ripple. Like if you toss a stone in the pond and it creates a ripple, the second kind of wave of ripple is the feelings that are coming up, the, the emotions, the different thoughts that are being experienced. And so in mindfulness, what we're saying is to not ignore that, but to not follow it, to just let the ripple happen. Oh yeah, ripple, just a ripple in the mind. And that takes discipline, right? That really does. So what's not actually happening, the stories that that then lead to the hurts and mistreatments, the fantasies sometimes, sometimes we call this proliferation of thought, or the Buddha called it papancha, which is one of my favorite words. Papancha is rumination, you know, proliferation of thought. This thought leads to that thought leads to this thought. And I remember this one time, I I walked into a dining hall, um, and I 
smelled something that smelled good. Yeah, I didn't, wasn't quite sure what it was yet. And then uh, I looked down and I thought, and I, and I saw there was cookies at the end of the line. And I was at the beginning of the line being super mindful of my, you know, my every scoop I was putting on my plate. But the whole time thinking, I hope there's enough cookies. I hope they have more of them more in the back. I hope, because I really want a cookie. You know, it's been days since I had some cookies, you know, and, uh, and the just, and then like halfway through the line, there were plenty of cookies, you know, but I had that, like, there's not going to be enough. And the, the lady in front of me is going to take three and I'm not going to get one. You know, like that was, there was this whole thing. And I just kind of in the middle of, in the middle of the line, I just like laughed at myself. Oh my God, look at that story. Look at that papancha just playing itself. Mm -hmm. You know, and I caught it that time. And I just laughed because it's not, it wasn't my fault. It just was what was happening. It just it happens all the time, right? It's all the time. And then associated thoughts connected to that. So that's this kind of what's happening about what's not actually happening. You know, the feeling tones based on the thoughts of the past, which we create uh, kind of some like emotions or mental fabrications, right? And then when clung to, see in that moment with the cookie, I was able to see it and I was able to let it go and it didn't cause me much suffering. There was a moment of agitation. I felt it in my body, you know, and I was able to just kind of laugh at it. It's really important to have a sense of humor when we're looking at our minds, you know. Do not take this too seriously. So mindfulness of any of these things, body, breath, feeling tone, mental states, dharma, is the kind of the way to go. You know, this is the, pre and it, 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 it can be linear, but it doesn't have to be. You know. Sometimes people, you know, they get a book you know, oh, the teachings of the Buddha, and I'm going to read this book, and I'm going to soak in some Dharma, and maybe that will inspire them to then practice more, and then through the practice more, they'll start to get more understanding of their feeling tones or their, their emotional world, usually noticing the lack of emotional intelligence or where they still have room to grow. So I'm not a real stickler on like it has you have to start here and end here, um, and I don't think the Buddha did either. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gave so many different teachings and avenues. Um, and I kind of like start with what's easiest. So if it's easier to uh, start with feeling tone, then start there. If it's easier to start with body scan, body awareness, start there. It's easier to uh, engage kind of top down and um, intellectually understanding and then leading to kind of emotional intelligence, which will then lead to a more grounded foundational practice, then start there. People will, other teachers will disagree with me. That's okay. What has worked for me is experiential practice. I practiced for years without reading any books on 
Dharma or I didn't even really know. I thought the Buddha was the kind of the the happy Buddha, Chinese kind of fat guy that you see at the Chinese restaurant. I thought that was the Buddha. That's not the Buddha, actually. I come to find out. That's not a real depiction of the Buddha. It's a it's a some saint in China that they call the Buddha of Prosperity. He has some other name. I don't remember his name. Um, but you, I mean, I'm just saying that to illustrate that I didn't have much kind of intellectual knowledge, but I had a I had a foundational experiential practice for years, and I that that's the way that worked for me. I didn't want to hear a bunch of mumbo jumbo. And I was, I'm kind of a, like, okay, does this, it, it works. It helps me. Oh, when I take these kind of deep breaths and I, you know, bring some mindfulness and some concentration, I'm less angry. I'm less confused. I'm less agitated, you know, less frustrated. I'm less likely to act impulsively. And that works for me. But in order to, from the Buddhist perspective, in order to really create change for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of pain and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely these four foundations of mindfulness, this is the only way. Let me just say what Nibbana is. Nirvana is the common way it's described. The literal translation of Nibbana, Nibbana is to extinguish the flame. And it's like, uh, you know, if you're heating a pot and you Nibbana the flame, you turn off the flame, you extinguish the flame. So it's no longer producing heat. That is the Buddha's description of enlightenment. There's no more fuel or there's no more fire. All right, so I'll open up for thoughts, questions, reflections. Um, if you're in the Zoom and you have one, just raise the hand. You can go under reactions, I think it is. And uh, if you're in the room, you can lay, you have a fleshy thing with digits. You can raise that. Please. Um, so you, what were the four? It was um, what happened, your reaction to what happened, what's not happening, and then there was the fourth one, was there? No? Yeah, so the uh, what's happening what's happening about what's happening, what's not actually happening, which is the propancha, the stories, and then what's happening about what's not actually happening. So my example, Dustin, of um, seeing the guy that looked like somebody else, that, that was like, there was, I went from what was happening, but I didn't, I wasn't actually even registering what was happening. I just was, there was what was happening about what was happening right away. Right. And that's usually the case, you know, so um, the idea here is to can we maintain being in what's happening as it's happening from moment to moment more and more.
Yeah. So in that experience, could you have been like, or were you like, okay, so no, you had to tell yourself, no, this isn't, I realize this is, uh, we're triggering something from the past. Mm -hmm. Would that be an example of how you? Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Just to, and, and just to attend also to what it was going on inside of me. And then yes, you know, through the meditative awareness. So instead of just being reactive or, um, you know, scowling or, you know, whatever could have happened in that situation, which ended up not happening, but um, just using that as a, oh, that this is, this is what's happening, which then pulls us out of the story, right? Uh, this is a reaction. This is, I call it re-stimulation of a past hurt or mistreatment. Oh, I'm just being re-stimulated. And it's not my fault either. Does that help? Michael. Thanks, Jason. So Nibbana, the extinguishment of the flame, is the Buddha getting at like the the full cessation of like craving? Is that what, what he means by Nibbana or the, the full cessation of clinging and craving? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think um the 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 fuel like just to use that that kind of term the you know the fuel is the what well, actually wouldn't have been the bond of the flame it would have been the wood or the coal that is fueling the fire right um so the extinguishing of the flame is the, that there's no more fuel uh which is craving uh, clinging yes and so the cessation of Craving and clinging is the freedom from suffering, as we will say a hundred times, right? <laughs> so that's what I think. Yeah, I think you're right. That's the way I understand it. And the catching of when we're on fire. Like, when am I on fire? There's actually a whole sermon called the fire sermon, right? Where the Buddha is like, you know, your eyes are on fire, your ears are on fire, your, you know, your body is on fire. And he's talking about uh, a flame with craving, a flame with the, what, you know, desire or lust or clinging or aversion, you know, um, he's pretty dramatic about it with the, the fire sermon. Yeah. But basically, yeah, that's what he's saying. I mean, my thought about it. Please. Okay, so thinking about how this could be applied in like a slide that appears. Um, I, so a bolt for me would be to apply to grad school, but one thing that I always get stuck at is the person's statement because I feel like I have such an attachment to my story and I have such a clinginess that really brings up feeling at certain so I was wondering what your thoughts would be on how seamlessly that would be applied mindfulness to get to like mm. goals that you still have to you know, sell yourself in a sort of way to expose it. Mm. <laughs> uh, it definitely makes sense. And I had to do one of those. So mm. I know uh, a couple of them, actually. And I know what that's like. Yeah, I mean, you're already doing part of it by contemplating it. And then also, you know, 
Don't believe the fear. It's a liar. And just write it. Just write it. And then, and then, you know, my, my experience, my thought is to, you know, bring, bring mindfulness to it, write it as if you're not going to give it to anyone. And then maybe you'll go through and you'll see what, you know, what sticks out or write it and read it to your best friend. Someone that knows everything about you. Just to go through that process, you know, so you're bringing mindfulness to within what you're experiencing and, you know, maybe take some of the power out of it. That's some, just a, you know, a process, more of a thought, maybe more of a therapeutic answer than a Buddhist answer. But um, I think both things apply. Is that helpful? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Writing it and just putting it out, I could more individualize where I'm getting stuck on what's happening with, or what's happening about what's going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's you know, so to, just to kind of do it as if um, you're never going to give it to anyone. I should actually take your the advice that I just gave you and finish my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not at it. Yeah. And then I was just saying, um, for me in my past experiences, being reactive, and I have these storylines about myself. Mm -hmm. And then when you have practice and you, like you shared, you change, mm -hmm. right? And you have to remember that the story changes. So when you um, like say if it's not anger, it's like traumatic. It's very uncertain to be it's too traumatic. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm not, you know. And and sometimes like family members or people who know you from the past, they want to attach that same story to mm -hmm. you. And you just have the discernment now that like no, yeah. it doesn't fit. I mean, just for today, that could come back tomorrow. And then the other thing is, um, I remember like noting when you're with somebody who's super intelligent, but they have no um, concept of emotional. Yeah, they, they, it's hard to yeah, interact. Yeah, very, yeah, uh -huh. very analytical, but no, and it's just like, ooh, I don't know. Mm. I always envied that. And, mm. and now I'm just like, ah. Yeah, I um, she's talking about uh, emotional intelligence. I don't know if you guys could hear emotional intelligence versus kind of intellectual knowledge. Um, the I think that the trend is changing in this country. Uh, back to hopefully to the normal or to the middle somewhere, not normal, but to the middle, you know, uh, but there definitely was a, you know, and has been this like overemphasis and over kind of uh, uh, reward for intelligence versus emotional kind of balance um, or understanding. And uh, so the reward, and then that would cause it. And um, there was a teacher years ago, I was at this, the Berkeley Buddhist monastery at a, um, like a day long. And the teacher was like, we're so confused. We have heads on top of our heads. 
you know, like they're so we're, you know, we as a culture, as a people, you know, are so intelligent that we're so stupid, yeah. you know, and that, uh, that's, that's where I began to kind of see, um, not that there's anything wrong with having, with being intellectual, but to be so intellectual, actually for some people, they use it as a, uh, as a defense mechanism. You know, if I can be smarter than you and know more than you and think I'm better than you, then I don't have to actually interact with you or be in relationship to you. You know, that's a thing. Anyone else out there? All right. I'm just about out of time anyway. Knowing that uh, all that we do here, yeah, I don't see anything in the chat, so cool. Um, is Donna based? In other words, um, it's freely offered and um, we only ask that people support the center and support the teachings. And there's a bowl and there's a Venmo and there's a donation button and there's all of these ways. Um, also, you know, showing up early, uh, helping set up, volunteering for things like um, these are all different ways to be of service and to give back and to ensure that this will uh, be sustained and sustainable, you know. Maybe the Buddhist kind of Sangha is the first sustainable society. And now the rest of the world is catching on. So may any goodness that comes from our practice be dedicated to the freedom from suffering for all beings. We take this goodness into our own hearts, this cultivation of uh, goodwill and good intention into our own hearts. And then we extend it out in all directions. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.